You know, making this show, I get a lot of feedback. And one of the most common misconceptions viewers seem to have about me is that I'm a guy who never smiles and doesn't know how to have fun. And that really bugs me because it couldn't be further from the truth. In reality, I'm actually very fun, relaxed, and easygoing. Now, obviously, I could just be saying that to you. So tonight, I'm going to prove it. How? By spending the entire day with a complete stranger and measuring his dopamine levels during our hangout, comparing them against a baseline to prove scientifically that he did have fun hanging out with me. To start things off, I went on Craigslist and searched through the listings in the strictly platonic section in order to track down a stranger who'd be willing to spend time with me. I then sent emails to a handful of posters looking to hang out. And the next day, after fielding a number of inappropriate responses, I got a nice email from a man named Brendan, who had recently relocated to Los Angeles and seemed eager to make new friends. So we made plans to hang out later that week. I had a million and a half dollars, more or less, in the bank in 1997. A decade to the month later, I didn't have a million and a half in the bank. I had two and a half million dollars in debt. You know what? I want to defend myself as I do frequently before my kids who mock me. It was one of the worst times of my life because I thought of myself as being semi-retired. I thought of myself as a full-time investor. I was neither. Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> you know I didn't do that. Hey, I'm Paul Moore, and 57 years old. I'm in Lynchburg, Virginia, and I'm the founding director of Wellings Capital, a commercial real estate investment fund. And how did you get into that? You know, I spent years doing residential real estate. I did flipping, I flipped houses, I did single family residential, some small multifamily, I flipped waterfront lots, I did a small subdivision, I did an online marketing business for real estate and real estate uh, investors and realtors. But I spent years wondering in the back of my mind, how do people get into the big time? How do they get into commercial real estate? I didn't know syndication wasn't as popular in the early 2000s when all this was going on. And then I got thrust into multifamily by building a quasi-hotel, quasi-apartment in North Dakota during the oil boom in 2011. And that's how I got into commercial real estate. I ended up writing a book on multifamily. I told my dear wife and family, we're going to stay in multifamily investing from here on out. But later, we found out that multifamily apartments were way overheated. We didn't want to put ourselves and our investors at that much risk. And so we expanded into self-storage and mobile home parks. And when we did that, we also realized, hey, we don't have a track record in this. We don't have a history. We don't have a team. And we decided, well, why don't we become due diligence partners for our investors? And that's what we did. We built Wellings Capital to be a due diligence partner who invests alongside our investors in a diversified pool of self-storage, mobile home parks, and other assets as we expand. I always remember my real estate professor in college, he said, make sure you do your due diligence or else it'll become doo-doo diligence. 
Haha, <laughs> that's good. I need to remember that. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> so how do you actually get paid then? It's, it sounds like maybe I thought you were just capital partners, but you might get paid just for doing the due diligence as well. No, we actually get paid for providing a great investment experience as well. Our investors invest alongside of us into these large projects and we pool together a fund. And so our investors invest with us. We get a small fee on the front end, then a small annual fee to keep the lights on. And then we really get paid on the back end. If we exceed our expectations and projections, we get a 20% split above a certain level. I mean, typically the investors get the first 9% of the profit, and then they do an 80-20 split with us getting the 20 above that 9% per year. And is each deal different or is it the whole fund is allocated the way you're saying? Actually, we do funds about once a year, we launch a new fund. And so each deal is within that fund. So we might have one fund, for example, our Wellings Income Fund 2 had 76 projects in it. And so all those are independent within one given fund structure. And so you got started with this multifamily portion, it sounded like you said you were in North Dakota. Yeah, we were there during the oil boom. My buddy and I actually invested in the uh, Bakken oil boom in 2010. And he was flying back and forth. He has a small jet. And we realized, hey, there's no place to stay here. We have to fly back to South Dakota or somewhere else just to find a place to stay. There's hotels are all booked and there's just no housing at all. And there's 19,000 job openings. And one of the reasons people won't come here is they don't have a place to stay. And so we thought, hey, we're both in real estate. Why don't we build something quickly that will give people a place to stay that's an alternative to these not real nice man camps that people were staying in? And uh, we built it to be beautiful and wonderful and luxurious. Even when a downturn hits, we reasoned we would be the last one standing. And that's exactly what happened when oil dropped from $110 a barrel to the low 30s. The company we had sold our complex to still achieve success because we had a much nicer place than most of the temporary places that had been dragged into town. That sounds like it's about 10 years ago or so, but should we reel back to when you graduated college and maybe hear how you even got into the single family and even into real estate overall? Yeah, I'd, be, I'd love to tell that story. I can start before college. Okay, yeah. Why don't we go ahead and do that? All right. So I didn't have a very good sense for my future. I was an A student. I was getting, you know, like magna cum laude in high school, college, and then eventually in grad school. So junior year in high school, for years, I'd been telling my friends, I want to be a parapsychologist. Now, if you remember the movie Ghostbusters, you might remember that the People in that were the people who were investigating UFOs, Bigfoot, ghosts, paranormal psychology stuff, you know, paranormal activities is what I meant. And so I told my football coach, who was also a psychologist, I said, hey, I'm going to be a parapsychologist. And he finally, somebody finally said, really? He said, where are you going to study that? And I said, I don't know. I figure colleges have that degree. And he said, well, you're going to be going to college in about a year and a half. Have you looked into that? Thank God he was honest. And I said, no, but I will. And that day I called Duke University and got laughed off the phone. I figured they were the most likely. And so I quickly realized I needed to find another major. 
And uh, a friend of mine at a pool, I'm forwarding a year now. Now it was June of 1982. I was about to graduate from high school. Actually, I just graduated. And a friend of mine said, you ought to try petroleum engineering, get you outside, get you out in the wide open spaces. It's fun. People make a lot of money in oil, you know, and that's about all he said. And so I decided right then and there, I'm talking two and a half months from going to college. I'm like, yeah, that's what I'll do. And so I started to say, I went online. I looked into it and found a school that had petroleum engineering and I signed up. And that's about how little guidance I had when I got started. So getting an engineer degree, even though I was near the top of my class, it was my first mistake because I wasn't an engineer at heart, even though I was good at math and physics and all that. I wasn't an engineer at heart. I didn't know who I was. I made a lot of mistakes thinking, you know, that I would be that because it made a lot of money. Putting money first never works. It never makes sense. You need to figure out what you're passionate about. The world doesn't need more people that make more money. They need more people who are living out of their passion. And I didn't realize for many, many years that my passion was in communication, in marketing, and copywriting and even sales. And so fortunately for me, <laughs> when I went to school, there were seven graduates at Marietta College in petroleum engineering, and they each had seven job offers on average. Well, when I got out of school four years later in 86, there were about 90 graduates of petroleum engineering, and they had seven job offers also. But that was seven job offers total. And so I reasoned, this is not really something that seems like a stable thing. Maybe I should consider getting an MBA. And I did. I went and got an MBA at Ohio State, went to Ford Motor Company, where I worked for five years. I loved Ford Motor Company, but I just didn't feel like I was a great fit in corporate America. I looked ahead 20, 30, even 40 years to people who were in their 60s and thought, I don't really see myself doing any of those jobs and really enjoying them. And my wife didn't want to relocate every couple of years, which we thought we might have to with Ford. And so I started looking into becoming an entrepreneur. Now, I didn't know any entrepreneurs except the guy at the corner drugstore when I was a kid. Of course, I didn't take the time to interview him on being an entrepreneur. Wish I had. Was he selling drugs or something or what? No, just a drugstore. Oh, so the pharmacist. Yeah, the pharmacist, right. That's what I meant. And so the pharmacist there, you know, Charlie Bunnell, he had a great little pharmacy. And uh, I didn't know any other entrepreneurs. Everybody else I knew growing up went to work, usually at a paper mill or a steel mill in Middletown, Ohio. Wait, I just want to make sure, Paul. So was he a legal pharmacist or an illegal pharmacist? Because, you know, there's two types there. He was legal. Okay, I was making sure. Yeah. So that was before the days where CVS and Walgreens, I mean, those were Super X was a big one in Ohio. Those were around, but I mean, we always went to the local pharmacy and he was our pharmacist and he's the only entrepreneur I knew. I literally don't think I met anybody else ever who was in business for themselves. If I did, maybe it was a hair salon or something, but I didn't even think about being an entrepreneur. But when I started researching it, and when I started going down that path, I felt like my heart came alive. And so after five years, at, almost five years at Ford Motor Company, I quit to join a partner. Now, my wife was seven months pregnant. Were you the father? Yeah, we were married. 
And uh, we had been married for six years. Well, you said your wife was pregnant. I didn't know if you were the daddy. Yeah, my wife was pregnant. You know, we were married for six years and uh, she was a fearful, not risk taker by nature. And I've got to hand it to her. Her name's Elaine. And I want to thank her, you know, right now for letting me take the risk, letting me follow my dream, letting me potentially crash and burn. And she told me after I succeeded that she was willing on that day when I quit Ford with her seven months pregnant and quit my benefits and all the security and the salary and all that. She knew that I might crash and burn, but she was willing for me to take that risk so I could follow my dreams. And I'm so glad she let me, even though it's been a roller coaster in 28 years since I quit Ford. And I'll tell you more about that as we proceed through here. And so when you quit Ford, was she working as well or no? She had been working for like three or $4 an hour, I think as um, a caregiver in a daycare. And um, when she got pregnant with our first child, Jonathan, she quit that job and she has never worked for pay since. And so were you making a decent salary? Because it would seem like it if you came out with the MBA working at Ford for five years. You know, it's funny. Back during high school and college, I worked at a paper mill and then I worked in a petroleum engineering jobs and I was making 10 or $11 an hour way back then. We're talking about 83, 85. And then I went to Ford Motor Company and I got a job at 32,000 a year, which comes out to about $15 an hour. And then after uh, a while, I got a raise to about 40,000 a year. So 40,000 a year in 1992 was, I'd say it was fair money. It wasn't great. And so at that point, had you moved yet? And where were you located? We had moved from Ohio to Detroit, where I worked at Ford. We were in Detroit for a total of 10 years, five years with Ford and five as an entrepreneur. Why don't you tell us about your first entrepreneur experience and then quitting Ford? Yeah. So quitting Ford was actually not that hard. I was on a team of people at Ford Motor Company that actually had a bad reputation. I didn't know how bad until later, but they were sort of rebels. They traveled a lot. We went around the country training people on this new software. Actually, my boss's boss was a famous actor. He was a famous child star in the 1930s and 40s, I think, maybe the 20s and 30s. He was quite old. And uh, he was on a show called Little Rascals and um, Our Gang. And he was also in a famous movie. Anyway, he was sort of a rebel. And then the people on our team were really rebellious. And they just didn't have a great reputation within Ford Parts and Service Division. So when I quit... Wait, one second. What was their bad reputation? I still, still don't know what they were doing that was bad. They just had an attitude. Like they just kind of were bucking the system, bucking the trends that, you know, they went out, they worked 12 hour days, you know, and logged a lot of overtime. And I just can't put my finger on why, but they all had sort of a reputation as being not in the Ford system, if you will. They were sort of, I think it was because the leader of that traveling team, actually a couple of the leaders just had super bad attitudes. And I think I just got lumped in with them. And, you know, I didn't choose to work on that team, though I'm really glad I did. And when I quit Ford, I don't think it was as hard as it might have been otherwise. And why I'm saying that is they had a going away lunch for me. 
but like no big parties, no sadness, no vice president of the division coming and begging me to stay, nothing like that at all. So actually, I just felt it was the right thing to do when I left, and I'm glad I did. Energetic Austin here, and you know what? We like to say, no big, but the truth is, little things can really add up, and suppressing emotions only gets you so far. Like, when I read my negative podcast reviews, I didn't think it was a big deal that I cried myself to sleep every night. But you know what? I should have talked to someone sooner about this. You know, needing help doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you're human. We all talk to our friends when we're experiencing issues, but they don't always give the advice we need. Like when I talked to my make-believe friend about how I can become a better podcaster, and he just told me that I should start making more sexual and immature references on the podcast. And I'm not sure that's the best advice. You know, getting unbiased feedback and advice from a licensed professional can be refreshing and actually rewarding. When you're in a low point, you might feel alone, but over 50% of Americans struggle with their mental health. When I reached out to Talkspace, you know, I finally had someone to talk to other than my make-believe friends. And it felt awesome. We all need help sometimes. And asking for support when you need it is actually a sign of strength. I love Talkspace because I finally have a real friend to talk to. Plus, the Talkspace app makes it easy to connect with your licensed therapist on your schedule without having to wait weeks before your next appointment. Whether you're a parent, student, millennial, or just someone having a hard day, Talkspace can provide the support to help you feel better with a single message. Talkspace offers individual and couples therapy in addition to medication prescription services. Set goals with your therapist and they can help make sure you're really progressing. Talkspace therapists help you develop tools to cope in difficult times. Start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code MILLIONAIRE. That's $100 off when you use code MILLIONAIRE at Talkspace.com. Energetic Austin here. Are you tired of doing it all at your company? Are you looking for an easier way to onboard and manage remote employees? Well, JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. With JustWorks, employees can onboard themselves in minutes with simple software that makes a great first impression. You can give them access to national large group health insurance plans and handle payroll and PTO requests all on one platform. Plus, it comes with JustWorks expert 24-7 support for you and your team. JustWorks can relieve you of some of the administrative work you don't love, like taking notes on our podcast episodes, or things like running payroll, managing benefits, and figuring out state-by-state -state rules and regulations. JustWorks makes it simple to hire and manage remote employees across all 50 states. With JustWorks, you can onboard new employees with ease in an intuitive online platform. You can take the guesswork out of employee and tax regulations and requirements. You can access national health insurance plans so your employees can get coverage no matter where they live. You can also get help setting up sick leave policies and administering harassment and discrimination prevention trainings that comply with state and local requirements. Save hours on time tracking the sinks with your payroll. Plus, access 24-7 expert support as well as certified HR consultants to get answers to your questions whenever you need them. Manage your remote team and run your business with confidence. Find out how JustWorks can help your business by going to JustWorks.com. That's JustWorks.com for more info. But you said you were glad you had that experience. Why were you? 
So when I worked on that traveling team with Ford Motor Company, I'm glad I did it because I was glad for everything I did at Ford. I mean, everything I did, I was glad for the accounting job. I was glad I supervised 52 people in the, on the loading docks. I had to deal with hourly employees who were, you know, in the United Auto Workers, the UAW. I had to manage those employees. I had to write them up. I had to discipline these employees who'd been working for Ford for 20 or 30 years, and I was a year and a half into Ford. I liked every experience I had. I think it's just that I'm that way. I've liked pretty much everything I've done. So, yeah, it seemed pretty natural that I would like it. But so you liked what you were working on, but you didn't like the people, the team necessarily there. No, I like the team fine. I'm just saying that they had a bad reputation with upper management. Well, do you think they deserve that bad reputation? Absolutely. Right. You can be happy with the experience, and I guess you're learning from them too, but I mean, you left for a reason as well, right? Well, I left because I felt like God had made me to be an entrepreneur at heart, and I was quite sure that that was what I was supposed to do, and that's what I did. And um, I've never doubted that since. So you was 1992 when you left and you were in your late 20s? I started the company. I spent lunch hours, evenings, weekends, holidays, and vacations from March of 1992 all the way through the end of April 1993. And it's funny. I set a goal that I would quit Ford. I would have enough revenue, enough income to quit Ford. By the end of April, in fact, it was specifically April 30th, 1993, on April 1st, 1993, I had 3% of the revenue that I needed. Now think about that. After 11 months, I had 3% of what I needed. I had 97% to go. Is this an April Fool's joke? No, it's real. You know, April 1st is April Fool's? Yeah, April 1st, I had. 3%. And it felt like an April Fool's joke. I'll tell you that. You're right. And uh, by mid-April, April April 15th, two weeks later, I had 100% of the revenue I needed to quit Ford. And I gave my notice on April 15th. And my last day at Ford Motor Company was April 29th, two weeks later, one day before my goal. Now, I will say, as you can guess, that 97%, the other 97% of that $10,000 a month revenue goal I had to quit because I wanted to have some cushion and some money to pay a staff person, 97% came from one large client. So that's how I ended up quitting Ford. My wife was seven months pregnant and uh, I left my benefits. I left my secure paycheck and found out pretty soon that that 97% was from a client who was quite unstable. And they weren't a client that I think if I would have really recognized how unstable, and especially if my wife would have recognized how unstable they were, I don't know if we would have quit. I'm so glad I didn't know. So was that from your dad's company, the 97%? No, my dad was in Ohio working at a large paper mill. In fact, my dad had passed away in the late 80s. But uh, no, this was uh, a client I brought on uh, to do staffing for in Metro Detroit. You know, I've been joking, Paul, so it was a joke. <laughs> gotcha. So what was this mysterious company that you started? It was a, an HR company. It was a staffing firm. It was called PEO, Professional Employer Organization. 
They called it staff leasing when it started out in California. The dental world, the dentists had found out that if they could put their staff, let's say five dental offices, they got together and they put their staff all in one company and they call that, you know, company A. And then they put the dentists in their own companies, call that company B, C, D, E, I guess. Those dentists would pay themselves phenomenal benefits, great 401k plans, great health benefits, etc. And they put their staff in a separate group and they wouldn't treat them as well. Well, that became illegal, thankfully, in I think it was 76 or 86. I, I can't remember. I know it was one of those six years. And um, when that became illegal, those dentists said, wait, this was a great way to run our company. We've got all the payroll, taxes, benefits, workers' comp, all that stuff in a large group. We got a large pool. And by then, it was maybe hundreds of employees, not just five dental offices, maybe thousands of employees. I wasn't there. And um, they put them all in a big group. They did all their payroll and they did all their, you know, everything was done more efficiently. So they said, let's start an industry. I don't know if they said that. But anyway, they did. And they started the staff leasing industry. And then the staff leasing industry evolved and became the PEO industry, which is professional employment organizations. And that's what we did. We started the personnel department incorporated. We eventually had about 80 clients in our, out of Detroit. And those 80 clients had, I don't know, I think it was like 20 million in total annual payroll, taxes, benefits, plus little fees that we flowed through our organization. And we paid those employees and did their benefits and all that out of there. Can you give us a brief summary of like how much this company grew to and what ended up happening? Yeah, we ended up getting it to a point where I think that I and my business partner were making a total, we were paying our staff, paying our, you know, office expenses, paying our, you know, software, et cetera, marketing. And then I think we were each making about $100,000. That's about it. So we were making about $200,000. And that seemed like pretty good money to me, not so much to him, but we ended up selling the company to a publicly traded firm for an outrageous multiple because Wall Street, just like they you know, get fancy on certain industries or certain companies, they were pretty fancy on our industry. And so a lot of companies had went public in 1992 and 93. Excuse me, that's not right. 96 and 97. And so in late 97, one of those companies who went public paid us what I believe to be an outrageous amount of money for our company. And we sold. I stayed with the company another year as a salesman. And then I exited Metro Detroit, exited the company and moved to Virginia. So why'd you move to Virginia? We had two children and they were about five and uh, two. And we really felt like we wanted to get away from the big city, away from the, you know, like, you know, everybody driving the nicer car, having the nicer house, all that stuff. We wanted to get to um, a rural area where there was mountains and uh, where there was a lower cost of living, lower pressure. And we actually invited some friends of ours and we bought 120 acres on the top of a, a mountain in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And we invited them to join us. And so we had several friends who built homes or had double wides or mobile homes on the sort of the perimeter of this property. And we started a nonprofit organization to actually reach out to international students who were studying in the U.S. 
We wanted to give them a weekend farm experience, like a, a retreat in a mountain retreat in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And we did that and we, we had a great time doing that for a number of years. Now, is this affiliated with the Church of Scientology? No, we missed that opportunity. Okay, just making sure. So I guess if you bought something this large, did you make a lot of money on that exit? No, I can just tell you we made $2.9 million on it. I got 1.6, my partner got 1.3. And uh, my partner actually probably deserved more, but he was very, very generous. And he's had a lot of success in his life, partly because he's so generous. But did you buy the, all that land yourself, the 120 plus acres you said? Guess what we paid for it. 100K? I don't know. <laughs> I'm guessing it's really low because you're, you're a real estate guy now. It must have been a great deal. <laughs> yeah, 95,000. That's a pretty good guess by me, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a great guess. I mean, honestly, I would think that it would be way more. I think it would be a couple million, especially if I was thinking about it today, right? But I knew you must have gotten a good deal. <laughs> well, my son is in the business now. 23 years later, he buys land in that exact area. And I mean, right down the street from that land, he's got other land. And he pays about the same now, 20 years later. Blue Ridge Mountain land especially the really rugged mountain land is, you know, runs maybe a thousand dollars an acre to this day. Wow. That's amazing. So did you have like this off switch where you, when you were going to quit and go to Virginia, did you decide you're not going to be doing business for a while? Like I understand the lifestyle of maybe wanting to relax and stuff too, but I didn't know if you're kind of that type A where you like felt like the need to start another business as well. It was one of the worst times of my life because I thought of myself as being semi-retired. I thought of myself as a full-time investor. I was neither. I wasn't semi-retired because I was so driven. I was a type A personality, still am, and I did not find it fun to rest and relax and enjoy life. You know, we started farming some of the land and I was always too busy on the cell phone. Uh, I did have a cell phone. And, uh, you know, trying to make something happen with the next nonprofit retreat weekend or whatever to really just enjoy life and enjoy the land. And I thought, I'm going to be the best father and husband and friend ever. And I became the worst version of myself and the worst father, husband and friend during those five years on the mountain there. And we ended up moving back to town. My kids were getting older and they wanted to get involved in baseball and soccer. And we had a church back in Roanoke that we were going to 45 minutes away. And so we ended up moving to 10 acres on the edge of Roanoke. And if I could have known then what I know now about investing, and if I could have known about life, what I'm trying to learn now as a 57-year-old, I think I would have been way ahead. You know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. But speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Investing's typically boring. Speculating is exciting. Speculating is a way to triple your money or lose it all. And that seemed more exciting to me. And I did a lot of both. And speculating, that is, I losing money and making money. And it's one of the reasons I later launched a podcast called How to Lose Money. Because you're an expert at that? I became an expert at making a lot of money and losing a lot of money. But I didn't become an expert at investing, which is what Warren Buffett says, nobody wants to get rich slowly. 
And that's what I needed to do. And I wish I would have taken that what was left of that $1.6 million after giving some to charity and after, you know, investing. Giving some to Uncle Sam? Yeah, I didn't give much to Uncle Sam, but um, some. That's good. But uh, I wish I'd have taken that money and invested it. And it would be worth, you know, I would think 10 or $20 million now if I would have invested wisely. But I'm doing that now. And because of my battle scars, I'm able to help people who are younger who are looking at the landscape and wondering how they should invest now. Well, I'm glad you didn't invest it then because it makes a much better podcast episode. So think about everything happens for a reason. And that's why you're on this podcast right now. That's right. I believe that. So what years were you on the mountain? We were there from 1998 through about 2003. Okay, so you're mid to upper 30s during that whole time, 34, and then you got off at 39? Yeah, I was uh, about 34 to 39 years old. That's about right. So did you leave all your friends behind that you brought to the mountain? No, several of them moved to Roanoke as well. And so some of them are still there and we're still friends with them today. You said that was kind of the worst part. So what else went bad? I mean, it just sounds like... To me, you said you're trying to work from the cell phone a lot that I imagine there wasn't internet if you're, I don't know if there was, I mean, just tell me what were the hardest parts there? Cause again, you're in your mid to upper thirties and that's kind of where I am in life right now. And I'm trying to, I feel like I'd get too bored if I moved to the mountains and we're up there for that long, even though it might be beautiful and you want to get away to me, it's like, that might be a weekend vacation for me. I, I don't know if I could do that for five years. Yeah, no, there was a lot of things. A lot of the problem, to be super honest with you, was the interactions between my family and one or two other families there. We didn't know them as well as we thought we did. And honestly, we were like, we just didn't get along as well as neighbors as we did when we were in Detroit and they were in Southern Ohio. We thought, oh, we're going to be best of friends. But honestly... (laughs) When we were neighbors, we did not get along that well. And one of the problems was this. So I'm this type A, highly driven, feeling insecure because I'm not producing anything, entrepreneur. And so I thought, yeah, we should do three of these weekend retreats every month. And the other folks there, the people who were not type A, driven entrepreneurs with something to prove, they said, yeah, we should do three of these retreats. We agree three a year. And I said, what am, what am I going to do the other 48 weeks a year or whatever? What am I going to do? And so I was pushing hard and they were like foot on the brake. And so honestly, as soon as we got there back in 98, we had problems. And honestly, those problems were never really resolved. Those people didn't follow you to Roanoke, huh? Those people didn't. And we still, like I said, we're still friends today. We're better off not being neighbors. And we're better off not being in the same nonprofit organization together. Well, that's like some of us who've had, you know, good friends who are roommates, right? Yep. It's better if they weren't roommates, right? After they're not roommates, you're like, oh, yeah, we're better friends again because it's a little just too close. Luckily, I've never had this experience of like hiring a friend in a company too, right? Some of your good friends, I don't think you necessarily know their work ethic unless they're like in your business. You might think that they work hard, but then sometimes you're like, oh, okay, and then, then it becomes more, even more awkward. So I think everyone can understand whether it's a, you know, friends becoming neighbors or friends becoming coworkers or friends becoming partners in a business. 
there's always different boundaries that you kind of figure out. And then sometimes it still sounds like everything is going okay, but they might have a life circumstance come up that kind of messes with them mentally or you mentally. So it's just not the same timing. The timing might stink as well. Yeah, absolutely true. All right. So you had two kids at this point as well? Yeah, we had two and we have four now. Okay. And so as you move back to Roanoke and I guess you can get internet at this point in time? We had internet there. We had satellite internet and we didn't even know any better. I mean, honestly, we went from dial up to satellite while we were there and it seemed okay because we didn't know any better. But so when you go back to the quote unquote big city, are you like thinking in your head you're going to start a new business or what's going in your head at this point? Oh, by 2000, the end of 2000, we had already ditched the full-time nonprofit organization. We were doing that. We had kind of resigned ourselves to doing a handful of retreats a year. And I was flipping houses, uh, having a great time at that point. Did you mainly move up there too, to make sure you'd be safe for Y2K? How did you know? I had a feeling about you. Yeah, man, you were right. Actually, we really <laughs> did. And you know what? I, I want to defend myself as I do frequently before my kids who mock me. And uh, I say, look, I say Y2K was real. In fact, it was so real that the companies and the governments and all the software people who knew it was real jumped on it. They put billions and billions of dollars toward it to fix it. And that's why it didn't become the disaster that it could have become because it was real and it was generally fixed. So how many cans did you have stored up? How many cans of food? Yeah. We had a few. It's <laughs> just a few. <laughs> we had a few hundred. Yeah, I don't know. I lost track. My actually we ended up I believe by October of nineteen ninety nine, I actually went on a two week trip to India and um other places, Turkey and um to Nepal with some friends. And one of my friends was my former business partner. And he had researched it. He had a software company. He owned a software company. And he had researched it extremely thoroughly. And he convinced me on that two-week trip that Y2K wasn't going to be all that bad. And I believed it. In fact, I went into December 31st, 99, not even thinking it was going to be that bad. And that was true. I've got a feeling that I was kind of joking about the Y2K. But then <laughs> after you, again, get past that and you move to the big city, Again, going into it, are you thinking you're going to start a new type of business? Well, we had already started the house flipping business. And so both my business partner and I, who were in the house flipping business, both moved to Roanoke. Our wives were very and are still very close. We just spent four days with that same couple from Friday to Monday, celebrating her birthday and the 4th of July weekend here. And um, yeah, we started the house flipping business. And it was another example of me not being content, though, because after flipping dozens and dozens of homes, I said, hey, if we can make this much money, it wasn't that much, flipping houses, I bet we can make a lot more building houses. And so I convinced my business partner to start building modular homes with me, and we did. And then I went further and started flipping waterfront lots at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. I did a small subdivision. And I even built a few homes ground up, which was not a smart thing to do. It was not smart for a guy who didn't know how to tighten his own doorknob. 
Yeah, understandable. So you, you weren't the handiest man, but you had business savvy, so understood. But then I guess everyone else was heating up that real estate market as well, huh? That's right. So I guess what happened from there? Well, we flipped houses and flipped waterfront lots, did a small subdivision. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, I always wondered, where was the on-ramp? Where is the on-ramp to commercial real estate? Yeah, but at that point, was there a crash in real estate that I heard about? And were you okay as you were flipping houses and whatnot? Some little thing came up in 2007 to 9 or 10. I can't remember. Oh, yeah, the great financial crisis that destroyed the economies of the whole world. That? Yeah, that happened. And we were right in the middle of it. In fact, I had a million and a half dollars, more or less, in the bank in 1997. A month, excuse me, a decade to the month later. In other words, the fall of 2007. I didn't have a million and a half in the bank. I had two and a half million dollars in debt. And uh, that's where I was. I was stuck deeply in debt. My business partner came to me about that time. This is another business partner I haven't mentioned previously. And uh, he said, you know, we got this, uh, all this uh, debt on these waterfront lots and nobody's buying waterfront lots right now. And I just can't pay half the debt anymore. So sorry, I'm going to go ahead and let you take over all the debt and the assets. It's all yours. I'm signing off December 31st. It's over for me. And I get it. I really do. And he and I are still friends today. And he still works on my team today. But at that time, he couldn't pay half the debt. And so I got stuck with all $2.5 million in debt going into the what we didn't know at the time. You got to remember, we didn't know what was, would be the greatest financial crisis in modern history. I don't have a scalable internet business. So your podcast, your guest that you interview resonates a lot more. Uh, you know, you interview them very well and uh, you're quite consistent. So, you know, I, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to. Well, yeah, like I said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai? Yeah. So it's the capital of the UAE. He actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with. Yeah, uh, that'd be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him. So I helped, finally. No, no, just talking to you has uh, helped, uh, helped get my thinking going. But it's bad when you do it to your wife, though, because then you have to crash on the couch. <laughs> See, I have to sleep on the couch every night, too, man. See, we're the same. Was that helpful at all, Gary? Say no. <laughs> Worst experience of my life. One star review. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm used to those. Wish I could leave no stars. <laughs> oh, yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, thanks, guys. It was a really great experience. I feel like there's a lot to reflect on. So, yeah, thank you. And so you said, hey, this is a great time. Let me just go ahead and get in commercial real estate now. Is that what you were thinking? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Because you did kind of just jump to that. You realize that, right? <laughs> it was about a four-year-later jump. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying, because I don't want to miss this part. I know, right? So your quote unquote, was he your friend? Yeah, he's my friend and business partner, Ted. And uh, Ted told me, you know, I can't do this anymore. And I wasn't flipping houses anymore because I was already, you know, flipping waterfront lots. I had another business. You were just getting debt on lots instead. Yeah, I was getting debt. You know, we would go buy a lot for, let's say, $300,000, mostly debt. And then we would improve it 
and like let's say we trimmed a lot of the underbrush and we put a park bench on it we put a beautiful sign on it we put it on the internet and then we maybe market it six months later we bought it for 300 maybe we had 330 in it and we would market it for 450 that's an expensive park bench yeah man i tell you what it was beautiful it had some brass you know handles on it and everything but anyway I found myself in November of 2007. Now, remember, we didn't know how bad things would get. And we assumed the worst was over because the financial crisis had already started for us because in 2005, 6, 7, D.C. was already feeling a lot of the financial crunch. In fact, the real estate market was already trending pretty far down in 2006. I can't prove that statistically. I just know that's what we experienced. We were about three and a half hours from D.C. Most of our buyers at Smith Mountain Lake were from New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Philadelphia, D.C. area, some from Raleigh. And those places were already experiencing a crunch before it got really well known. And so we were hoping the worst was over. And of course, we didn't know we were about to fall off a cliff. And so I'm sitting in my chair one morning and I try to meditate every morning. And I was journaling and I was saying, you know, I had this real strong impression. What would George Mueller do? Now, George Mueller was quite famous in the 1800s, not as so much anymore, but he's one of my heroes. George Mueller, he's technically pronounced Muller in English. George Mueller was a wonderful man. He was actually a hellion in Germany in the early 1800s who became sort of a saint in England later in the 1800s, and he cared for a total of about 10,000 orphans from the early to mid-1800s all the way through 1900, and then his legacy went on for a long time after that in Bristol, England. Well, George Mueller was quite unconventional. He didn't do things the normal way, and he did all kinds of things really in an abnormal way. In fact, he raised what we believe to be about a quarter billion dollars in today's dollars. And he never, ever did a fundraiser. He never marketed. He never asked anybody for a dime or even told anybody he needed money. The money just came. And um, he was incredible. Did he just print it up? No. You know, that's 1913 and beyond, man. This was before the Federal Reserve, my friend. But he was in Germany. I'm sure they were printing up whatever. Well, he was in England. They did print a lot of money in Germany later, but seriously, he, you know, he was a man of faith. He really believed that if God wanted him to care for orphans, and if God cared about orphans, which he knew he did, he would provide the money. And he provided all the money he ever dreamed of. And he has a record to this day. There's records. There's vaults of his records where he tracked every single penny, every single dime that came in, and everywhere it was all spent. He was quite odd in that way. But at any rate, I thought, what would George Mueller do? Well, the first thing he would do is not be in debt. So I was already in trouble in that regard. But fast forwarding a little bit, if he would have been in debt, what would he have done? Well, I believe he would have been a go-giver. He would have been the kind of person who would have started giving his way out of debt. And that's what I just really concluded I needed to do on that Sunday morning. I wrote it down. I went to church that Sunday morning, and our preacher, our pastor, who had never mentioned George Mueller to my knowledge from the pulpit, told a story of George Mueller that morning, and I said, that's it. Okay, I'm going to do this. So you started giving away your debt to everybody? Oh, no. 
No, no, <laughs> you know I didn't do that. I got more debt. My CPA's husband and another good friend have been talking about me, not behind my back as much, but they have been talking about the horrible situation I was in, and they met me together at a Hardy's restaurant. Now, for you west of the Mississippi, that's called Carl's Jr. But we met at a Hardy's restaurant in Roanoke, and they said, So, Paul, what are you going to do? It looks like your back's against the wall. You must be really nervous. I said, No, no. I'm going to give my way out of debt. And that went over really well, just about like that. And they said, what did you say? I said, I'm going to give my way out of debt. I'm going to start giving aggressively to the charities, nonprofits, churches we care about. And we're going to see what happens. Yep. January 1st, 2008, again, not knowing the hole we were about to fall into as an economy. I said, we're going to start giving aggressively. We have a set amount we're going to give every week, and it's painful. And we're going to give that every week, and we're going to see what happens. The worst that can happen is what already looks like it's about to happen, because they said, yeah, it looks like you're going to have to declare bankruptcy, doesn't it? I said, it looks that way, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. We'll see. And so I called my family together. My wife was on board for this. Another hats off to my wife here. She was on board for this crazy scheme. I called my four kids together and I said, hey, I said, uh, we're going to give our way out of debt. And they didn't know what that meant. But anyway, they remember it still to this day. And so we started on January 1st, 2008, giving an aggressive amount, a painful amount of money. And we said, we're going to keep giving until we can't give anymore. And honestly, I don't recommend this, but we were more or less living off of lines of credit in any of the waterfront lots we could sell at a discount at that time we were living off that. And so not a great way to uh, move down the road to give your way out of debt if you want to do that. But anyway, January 28th to 30th, somewhere around then, about four weeks into this painful process that actually brought us joy and peace, I should add, about four weeks into that, I met a real estate developer at a Subway restaurant. And I told the real estate developer about my problem. And I also told him about the five acre, 5.3 acre piece of land that adjoined Smith Mountain Lake that I could not subdivide because the law did not allow me to subdivide it because it was on a private road and there were some other restrictions that were all quite valid. And that was an example, by the way, of me speculating rather than investing. You know, I told you I thought I was a full-time investor back in starting in 97, 98. I was a full-time speculator. Well, one of the speculations got me this waterfront lot that I thought I could subdivide when I couldn't. Well, he said, you know, you ought to try this. And for time's sake, if you don't mind, I'm going to not share what that is. But he basically gave me a legal end run around the law that said I couldn't subdivide. And I said, oh, it was called the family exemption. I said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know about the family exemption. That won't work for me. And he said, well, you know, think about it differently. It might work if you just flip it on its head and think differently about it. And that was about the end of the conversation. Well, I had a light bulb moment. I literally got so excited sitting there at that Hardy's restaurant. And I said, wait. And I sat down and drew up what he said. And I realized it could work. I immediately called my surveyor who was about 65 years old. He had a great reputation with the county for being a great upstanding man. And I said, hey, listen to this idea. And he said, oh no, you've got to be kidding. That's crazy. 
I said, yeah, I know. So I convinced him to go with me to the county planning and zoning department two days later, and we met with him, and I think he was quite embarrassed and uh, that I was presenting this crazy idea. And when I was finished presenting it, the lady behind the counter, she looked up at me over her glasses and she shook her head. She said, I've been working here for decades and no one's ever come to me with such an outrageous idea to circumvent the law. And then she smiled. She goes, but you did. And she said, I don't know how you did it, but nobody's ever thought of this. And you did think of it. There's a loophole in our law and you're right. You can legally subdivide this land and I couldn't stop you, nor will I. I give you my approval and I will stamp it when it comes in from the surveyor. So I can't say that that was the end of our problems. That was the beginning of a painful, difficult 13-month process where we were rejected by banks, where we fought using attorneys, where we had to get new banks, we had to get surveying done, we had to get soil tests, We had to find five buyers for expensive waterfront lots in a very, very difficult time to sell any lot, far less an expensive waterfront lot. And right in the middle of the mess, August, September, October of 2008, we sold four of those five lots. And we sold the fifth one not that long later. And by within 13 months, by the spring of 2009, We were 100% debt-free. In fact, we even paid off our house. And that's all because you started giving away your debt? We didn't give away any debt. We gave away money. Yeah. Well, you gave away money and went more into debt. I was joking. We actually did. We actually went deeper into debt for a while. And I don't recommend that. And you're not part of Scientology? I don't even know what Scientology is. I heard, is that something with Tom Cruise or something? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) For they ask for a lot of money and people go into debt. So I'm just making sure. Man. I think I know about as much as you do, other than I watch a documentary. If you you look at uh, their building in California, it's pretty interesting. Is it? No, I don't know much about Scientology, but I do know that there is a law of the universe and that law is called sowing and reaping. Some other people call it karma. Some people call it You know, you give now and you receive later. And if you've read The Go-Giver, the book by Bob Berg, he talks about giving up front and receiving later. Now, I had never, ever heard of that book at the time. I don't even know if the book was written at the time. I actually have not read that book, but I know the principle. And I know that principle is you give first and you go into every situation and relationship with the attitude of giving and you'll be taken care of. And there's now scientific proof, by the way, from a professor in Syracuse University who studied this to disprove it. And he actually proved it was true. If you give more, you'll get much more. And so this lot subdividing is called the family exemption. Is that just in Virginia? Is it still legal? No, since you asked. Of course, I'm going to ask if this got you out of whatever issue you had. Well, it's not the only thing that got me out. I mean, we had two and a half million dollars in debt. Well, other than Jesus. Man, he was amazing too. I tell you, he really was. But that's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about the family exemption. Here's how it works. If you're a farmer and you have 40 acres and let's say you have two kids and you want to get them their start in life. And those two kids, you know, let's just say it doesn't matter if they went to college or not. I know some don't up here in the Blue Ridge Mountains. 
And so they say to the kids, hey, I want to give you a start in life. I'm going to grant you five acres in the back, you know, in the back of our property, way over here off the road. And I'm going to subdivide five acres for you. And I'm going to subdivide that five acres for you. And you have to keep it. You have to own it for at least, I think it was three, but it might have been five years minimum. You can't sell that lot. Well, the law allowed them to do that. They had to hold it for five years. So that's not going to work because I had to sell these lots in five days. No, seriously, I had to sell them as quickly as possible. So if everybody subdivided and then gave it to their spouse, a piece of it to their spouse, they'd have to hold it five years. That wouldn't work. But we found a way to flip it on its head and make it work anyway. So how did you make it work anyway? It's pretty complicated, and I don't know that I could explain it on this podcast, but I'll give it a shot. Let's do it. All right. So the whole group of lots that I had 860000 in debt on, if I recall, was worth about $1.3 So let's just say $1.3 for the minute. We had to convince the first buyer to buy all five acres from us. And then what he did is he financed about a million two of that and he put down 100000 We had to convince a bank to finance 1.2 million. By the way, this lot, the five acres as five acres was appraised for about 800,000. Nobody would have paid 800,000 in this time, remember. The bank gave him 1.2 million cash. I mean, they paid it to us actually, and he put down 100,000. He bought all five acres. He subdivided one acre off and he gave that acre to his wife. Now she has to hold it for five years minimum. And that's where I got hung up in the Subway restaurant saying that won't work because the next subdivide is going to be five more years. And what the guy said is, did the law really say that the person who did the subdividing, let's say the farmer with the 40 acres in the original analysis, did it say they had to hold it for five years? And that was my light bulb moment because I went down to the county planning and zoning and said, after the subdivision and after that grant is given to the spouse or the kid or whatever, does the original tract have to hold five years? I don't think they do. And that's when she realized, oh my goodness, there was a loophole. And that was a loophole. Because what he did is he sold four acres to the next buyer for a million. Now that million dollar buyer granted a one acre tract to his wife. That guy was from Connecticut. He was like a hedge fund manager or something. Then he granted that to her and that was worth 300000 as well. Then he sold the remaining three acres a week later for 700000 And that person granted one, uh, an acre to his wife, and that guy was a software consultant, and he sold the remaining two acres for 400000 and then so on and so forth. That's how it worked. And so you lined all those people up kind of at once? Yep. Okay. We lined them up all at once except the last one. We were willing to live with the risk of one lot not selling, and it didn't for about six or eight months, actually. It's clever, obviously, of you guys, but it seems like it's pretty messed up of whoever's doing the zoning. It's obvious people want to buy this property, and the actual county government or whatever city government's not allowing them the opportunity. So you have to work around. And this is just an example of any entrepreneur you're going to run into stuff. You just got to figure a way to go around it. And no matter what government tries to do on any level, 
an entrepreneur is going to be smart enough to try to figure it out. So it's, I guess, fantastic that you're able to try to figure that out. But I think you get a fantastic job of explaining it. Well, thanks. You know, I've had a lot of time to think about it. And I can't prove that us giving aggressively, by the way, we start, we kept giving that same amount every week for the next, I think it was 10 years. And then we actually upped it. But at any rate, I can't promise you, I can't prove to you that giving resulted in our getting out of that terrible mess we were in, in the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. But I really, truly believe that it did. And so after you get out, you said, hey, I still love real estate. Now I just want to up the ante and go to commercial. You know, not at all. Actually, I was quite depressed. Believe it or not, even though we got out of debt and we were debt free, I actually thought, just like I thought with petroleum engineering, about what would it have been 20 years earlier, I thought, you know, this is so risky. I need to diversify. And so I went out and got trained in marketing copywriting. I went out and got trained in how to write letters and emails and web copy to actually be persuasive. And I actually used that skill for a couple years to help people write fundraising letters. And I still do that for fun on the side to this day, help people that are trying to raise money to start a nonprofit organization or whatever. I still do that on the side as a way I serve. But I actually got into copywriting for a number of years. And then when that was 2008 to 10, excuse me, 11, and then in late 2010, we invested in oil and gas. And then in 2011, we built the apartments and we were thrust sort of mindlessly into commercial real estate in 2011. And that's what I've been in for the last decade. So how much money did you make up till that 2011? point because you said you're two million in debt and it didn't seem like you had much money and then you said you got out of debt so how much money extra did you have as well none we were two and a half million dollars in debt in 2000 late 2007 early 2008 we were debt free and we paid off our house by spring of 2009 and we really had no money at all at that point except our home equity and then you took that money and the home equity, you took a home equity line out and put it in, you said petroleum? Well, what I didn't mention on the side here, I, yes, I invested some in petroleum in, in an oil well in North Dakota, and that was speculating. We put a total of about a million dollars down a hole in the ground and exactly zero came out. And so that was another example of speculating when I said I was investing. And so that was uh, one of the many, many painful stories that I had when I launched How to Lose Money. Right. But how did we make money before we lost it? Well, I didn't mention this because it wasn't a critical part of the story. But in 2004, I tried to be a builder, which I did mention that I, I was laughable as a builder. But in August, actually, of 2004, I got a phone call and this guy said, hey, I'm Dave Stevens. I run Freddie Mac. No, seriously, I'm the senior vice president of Freddie Mac. Don't hang up. I said, okay, why would I hang up? He said, because I've called seven other realtors at Smith Mountain Lake and nobody would return my call. I'm trying to buy a condo at Smith Mountain Lake. I want a big condo for my growing family and I can't get a realtor to even return my call. And I said, well, okay, but I'm a builder. He said, yeah, but the front page of your website says you're also a realtor and I like your website. I thought I'd give you a call to see if you'd help me. 
And I said, well, well, sure, sure, I'll help you. Because I remember I was a serial entrepreneur. I'd say yes to everything at the time. And so I agreed to help this guy. And in about, I don't know, 15 hours work tops, I made a nice $16,000 commission. Well, I made $16,000 in 15 hours but I had just spent like eight months losing $40,000 building a house. And I hated every minute of it, except the design part. Of course, I love that. So I thought, well, I should be a realtor. So in 2004, I switched our whole business model, stopped building houses, thank goodness. And I started actually marketing the waterfront lots and regular real estate through this website, smithmountainhomes.com. And I had that running that business was running all those years. So from 2004 to this moment and beyond, hopefully, the Smith Mountain Homes website was generating leads for realtors. I would sell those leads to realtors and those realtors would give me a large percentage of the commission when they made a deal. And I had that income running the whole time. And so that's the income I was living off of in 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Even during the great financial crisis, we were still making money with that business. Yeah, but you still were two plus million in debt though, right? That's right. I mean, I was taking that money and it was going to pay off our debt in 2007 and then even into toward the end of 2008 until we got even. Just selling the lots, that didn't get you enough out of the hole, right? Well, I didn't mention that in addition to that five-acre parcel, we had about eight other lots that we sold over that year, and we sold all but one. So did you net actually made a profit off all those lots after you finally sold them all? Honestly, I think we were near break even. Well, you must have, right? Because then you, you said, I'm just trying to see how you got money to invest in petroleum. Well, I have money in my IRA as well, and that's what I invested in the oil well, to be honest. Oh, okay. So that, that was your money that you put aside. Okay. Yeah. Self-directed IRA. Mm -hmm. So that's 2010 what you put money into. And then 2011, you're saying then you started investing in apartments out in North Dakota? Yeah, we built some ground up apartments. And thankfully, we had a builder on the team, a general contractor type guy who knew what he was doing. And he was smart enough to build all those modularly, meaning we set up the foundations, we set up the land, we set up the driveway, the well, the septic and all that. And we brought the cabins in and they were placed. These were beautiful cabins that we were we placed them on site on uh, this 75 acre tract that we bought in North Dakota. So did you raise money in order to do that? Yeah, we did. We raised money from a handful of friends and then debt from banks. How much money did you have to raise? I can't remember. I vaguely remember it was in the, to the tune of about a million and a half equity and about four million in debt, something like that. And did your friend have a truck record in uh, building apartments? No, he didn't. Neither one of us did. But we were at the right place at the right time. Let me tell you an example of why. So oil companies were eager to get places for their people to live because they were eager to fill those 19,000 job openings and drill more wells well, while things were good. And so they were paying three, $400 a night to have these people stay in hotel rooms, sometimes encouraging them to double up, but three or $400 a night for these cheap motel rooms and hotel rooms. And those were all booked. So when we came out with a beautiful cabin for them to stay in, for only $129 a night, 
It seemed like an amazing deal. It seemed like we were really cheap. But think about it. As an apartment, we were charging $4,000 a month. $4,000 a month for a beautifully furnished 300 square foot unit. So that turned out to be $13 per square foot per month. The going rate for an apartment is about a dollar per square foot per month in the heartland of the U.S. We were charging 13 times that. But as a hotel room, we were a great deal. And that's exactly what we wanted to be. Well, how did you find out about this opportunity if you're all the way in Virginia? Uh, Well, I had a petroleum engineering degree, and so I was always a little bit ear to the ground with what was going on in oil and gas. And um, I actually found out about it through a friend. I had a mentor in the copywriting business. I paid mentors at least $25,000 at least three times in my life. And um, that was one of those mentors. It was a copywriting mentor that I had paid starting in 2009, I think. And he actually heard about the Bakken oil boom, and he introduced it to me and a bunch of our friends. Did he introduce you to the opportunity of speculating, of putting money into the ground as well? Oh, heck yeah. What a guy. Yeah, he did. And you know what? Speculators make a lot of money. Let's be clear. I know of a guy who took $3,000 and turned it into a million in the last year speculating. But I want to be clear, that's not the path for most of us to make long-term multi-generational wealth. The path for most of us is boring. Investing should be boring. Warren Buffett says the best investors are usually bored and boring. And Warren Buffett has spent almost the last, you know, 80 years of his life, of his 91-year life, being incredibly boring. He wasn't bored because he liked that kind of stuff. But most of us would be think it was incredibly boring. Paul Samuelson was the first economist from the U.S. to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And Paul Samuelson said, investing should be boring. True investing should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. Appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon member. Yeah, no problem, man. So what inspired you to become one? There was some content specifically, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy over at uh, Meineke. I was just like, I had to listen to the end of it. So it was, it was a good hook. It is so funny that you said that because when I literally just got done editing, the guy said the exact same thing. Really? Yeah. I kept thinking that story was so good. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if you thought the same thing, obviously. The guy, as you can just tell, he's a grinder, you know, and you want to root for a guy like that. Well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. I mean, he's a boring guy. And so I guess if people don't know, they can look more into him, Warren Buffett, you know, but he's just long-term looking at, you know, investing in businesses. But coming back to your story, it's still maybe, I don't know if you can see from my perspective, it's kind of hard to figure out how you went from just breaking even and then having enough money. I understand how you, how you had the money to speculate, right, with the oil. But then even this opportunity in apartments, like you're still in Virginia. So I'm like wondering 
how you were able to convince enough people because financially it does make sense, right? You look at the numbers on the piece of paper. Were you just able to say that and then go to a bank in North Dakota and tell them, hey, look at this. I don't have any background in this, but trust me. Well, my business partner had just made $18 million selling his software company. Same guy who convinced me Y2K wasn't going to be that bad. And so he had $6 million of that 18 in his bank account, number one. Okay, so that helps a lot. <laughs> number two, he had a lot of people who trusted him. So now it makes a lot more sense to me, right? I mean, I think if you didn't have that friend, then it seems like it'd be harder to go just based on it, just because you didn't even have a track record in it. It's not, again, financially it can make all the sense, but that guy who was your buddy, what was his name? His name's Barry Farah, but... I think that's another one of the life lessons I have here. One that you might have missed was hire expensive mentors, hire expensive paid coaches. I mean, if you get the right person, it can change everything. So how much is your coaching course then? I don't have a coaching course. Okay. What, me? Yeah. No, I don't coach anybody. I mean, except for free. But um, no, I, uh, I recommend people hire paid, expensive paid coaches. If they can afford them? Yeah, I mean, even if, if you, sometimes even if you can't. Uh, I mean, remember, I paid 25000 for that guy in 2009, and things were not really, you know, the, at the best. I mean, I think it might have been early 2010 by the time I paid him. But at any rate, that's one lesson I want to give people. And another one I would say is partner with people who are smarter than you and who have more experience and more connections than you. It can catapult you ahead. And I highly recommend people find a great partner like I found in Barry. Remember, Barry helped me quit Ford as well. I didn't mention that real clearly, but Barry already had quit Ford. And he went through the same MBA as me, same Ford Motor Company as me. He quit, though, after 13 months and launched this company. It took me almost five years to quit Ford, and he was already well-established by then in Indianapolis. I opened up a Detroit office that partnered with his Indianapolis company. Oh, okay. So back to Barry and Ted, because you mentioned one guy was Ted also in 2007. He was your partner at the time who left you with all this debt, and now he works with you still today? Yeah, he's a realtor on my team. Remember I told you I have that Smith Mountain Homes team where I sell leads to realtors. Well, Ted is one of our top realtors. But you didn't have an issue with a guy who walked away that y'all both co-signed, I imagine, on some debt and that he said he just couldn't do it anymore and left you? Oh, heck no. I had no problem with him at all. I understood. He couldn't do it. Well, could you do it? Yeah, I did. I could do it. Well, I mean, it was hard, but I had, number one, the faith to believe I was going to find a way out. And number two, I had Smith Mountain Homes running in the background, which just barely kept us afloat during those difficult times, he had nothing else going for him. So he had to go and find a completely different way to make money. Even though he left, and I guess you happened to have this Smith Mountain Homes on the side, was he one of the guys who left to Detroit to also come down there with you, or no? No, no, I met him here in, uh, in Roanoke when I was here. All right. Well, because I'm just trying to figure out like the, the friendship situations too. I, I just don't see many people, even if they had to walk away, you know, from the debt, if you're still on the hook, I mean, what matters too is your family, right? You were smart enough to, or lucky enough to have a side business, but he is able to co sign it away and you literally took on all the personal liability of that debt. I sure did. Yeah, man. I was glad to do it. Here's what happened. When I came up with this idea in late January, I literally called Ted and said, Ted, 
you walked away from a gold mine. I mean, I think I'm going to be able to make a lot of money subdividing this land. Are you sure you don't want to stay in? And he said, nope, you can have it. And so I got it. So it helped you. You got all the upside as well. And that's the beauty of taking a leap of faith sometimes. It's not always that way. Sometimes it ends much like a disaster. And by the way, I want to be clear. I don't think I can just give a certain amount of money and automatically it come back to me and it, it will be, you know, it'll all work out just fine. It might not work. It may not work the way I said. I'm just saying it worked for me and I really truly believe it will you know, in many cases, if your heart's right, again, in many cases, if your heart's right, it will work out the way it did for me. Well, and you saw at that point in time, before you took on, I guess, all the debt that Ted was going to leave you with, you had already figured out that formula for being able to subdivide that land. Yeah, well, I mean, he had already gone for a couple months by the time I found that formula. But and keep in mind, we didn't know if it would work even then, because think about this. What bank in the world in the fall of 2008, in their right mind, would loan somebody they just met $1.1 million, or $1.2 million maybe, I think it was, to buy a, land, a piece of land valued at 800000 Nobody in their right mind would do that, but they did. Well, what bank was it? It was just a local bank that uh, was willing to do it based on uh, me convincing them. And about halfway through this process, by the way, they charged everybody ridiculously low amount of money. I think they charged everybody a point. So they got to do a loan at like 1.2, another one at like 900, another one at like 600, another one at like 300. And they charged everybody a point. And you may say that's a lot, honestly. For what they gave us, it was not a lot. And I'd already had one other bank who I had to storm out of their office in anger when they turned us down. And trust me, that was one of the more dramatic moments of my life. And um, they were the ones holding the $860,000 loan, and they refused to do this for me. And I said, well, you're going to get the deed to this back. See, I remember I had everything lined up. The county had agreed. The zoning was all pre-approved. The surveys were done. The soil tests were done from the soil engineers. I spent thousands out of my pocket for all this. And then the bank refused to play along. And now, looking back 13 years later, I totally see why they refused. But the time, it seemed unreasonable to me. And I stormed out of their office and never spoke to that bank vice president again, except through attorneys. So what local bank did you storm out of? I'm never going to say because they're actually a, a well-known bank now, and I still have respect for the bank. But I can tell you the bank that did the deal was Franklin Community Bank in Franklin County, Virginia. All right. So I guess coming back to the apartments you do in North Dakota from you were in Virginia, did you move out there with Barry to start doing this construction? No, I moved out there. Barry flew back and forth in his little jet, and I flew back and forth in my American Airlines <laughs> coach class seat uh, a number of times. And then I actually drove out there once with my family in the summer of 2011. And was that all you worked on for the next several years? I had Smith Mountain Homes running in the background. I had a little bit of copywriting going in the background. What copywriting were you doing? I actually took some contracts and copyrighted and, and actually wrote letters for people, including uh, an organization 
selling newsletters based in uh, Durango, Colorado. And um, I actually wrote letters for them and I got paid quite well to do that. How much did you get paid to do that? $53,000 for two variations of one letter. You're doing that on the side and you're doing your other, you know, real estate in the background, the homes website. But how much were you involved in the actual construction of those apartments in North Dakota? I was quite involved. I was the guy on the ground. I hired the general manager. I actually ran all the reservations and booking for three or four or five months, literally on my phone. All the 800 calls were routed to my phone. And before I hired and trained uh, somebody else to take that over, I was in charge of dealing with not, not the banks and the investors, but I was in charge of dealing with the city and the county. Um, I was uh, dealing with the residents when the general manager and a resident couldn't resolve something. You know, they, they called me. I was the one actually collecting the money from, uh, you know, all these tenants, uh, these, you know, that they, they would give us, you know, maybe a month payment or whatever. I processed all that. I did all the marketing. I designed and built. I didn't actually do the building, but I designed the website and oversaw that. That I took all the photos for that. I was deeply involved and um, I learned a lot. It was great. And when were you done with the project? We sold that in August of 2013, only two and a half years into it. And my business partner went on and took that money and much more and plowed it into a beautiful Hyatt House hotel. And I actually worked with him on that a number of years, like two years. But during that time, I was also continuing to do all the marketing for the apartments we sold because that company brought me on as their contract marketing director for about two years. And I had Smith Mountain Homes running in the background, and I was doing a mentoring program to learn how to do apartments right <laughs> because we did them on a shoestring. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. We just did it. And then after you get done with your friend, I guess, Barry and the Hyatt, you're saying in North Dakota as well, that's when you started doing commercial real estate, like your own thing? Yeah. So we were doing commercial real estate with that, you know, those two projects, you know, the apartments, then another apartment next door to that, and then the hotel. And then I actually got uh, involved in a mentoring program to learn to uh, manage apartments. In uh, 2014, I wrote a book about managing and owning and syndicating apartments in 2016. And uh, we've been at, in that sort of business with self-storage mobile home parks and apartments to a lesser degree ever since, well, basically 2014. Did it switch over to your own entity? That's what I'm saying with the differentiator between you, I guess, working with Barry and then now you starting your own capital company out of? Yeah, I started my own company in 2014 and we bought our first apartments in 2017. And I had two wonderful business partners at that time, but I bought them out in 2018 and uh, I uh, was the sole owner of that company for a short time. And then I granted 20% to a junior, to a guy who'd been working with me since he was a senior in college. He's been now with me for over six years and he's been phenomenal. And he now owns a portion of the company, like I said. Imagine he's very grateful for that, huh? He's not only grateful, he's, I'm super grateful for him because I would be very, very hard pressed to have had the success we've had this last several years without him because he's a master at managing and running operations. Uh, I mean, to the extreme. He does the work of two or three people. 
And so what's your son's name? That's not my son. That's actually a business partner. Yeah, my son. (laughs) Nice. You got me. I've been doing it the whole time, but go ahead. Yeah, his name's Benjamin Colley. And uh, my son has a real estate business, and I'm really proud of him as well. His name's Jonathan, and he is not a master of operations, but he is gifted, absolutely gifted in figuring out the value of mountain land and buying it for a fair price and then doing things to make a tremendous amount of profit out of that piece of land. Like um, putting nice park benches on there and then giving it to family members? No, they're not doing the park bench thing anymore. We quit that in 2009. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Is there anything else you think we missed throughout? I don't think so. I mean, I want to leave people with the importance again of, you know, look, the best way to building long-term wealth, in my opinion, is being a giver first and actually investing, which is boring, and not speculating. It's fine to speculate as long as you know you're doing that and you're doing it with a small part of your income or a small part of your assets, I should say. But true wealth is having assets that produce cash flow. And true wealth is not in gold or silver or Bitcoin. Those things can be part of the portfolio, but the true wealth is having assets that produce cash flow while you sleep. Because Warren Buffett said, if you don't learn to make money while you sleep, you'll have to work until you die. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Paul. Hey, man, thanks for having me on. It was a real honor and it was a joy. Great time. And uh, thanks for your humor. I appreciate it. I wish I'd have got it earlier on. <laughs> Flash forward to 2009, and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro. And I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998. And I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly. And there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing, and the night before I have to testify. So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview, well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club, or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you in the membership forum.